Today, you'll hear the views and ideas of our podcast guests. And while we respect their expertise, they do not represent the views of positiveeffect.org or the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions. Welcome to Podcast. We are created by and for people living with HIV. On each episode, we explore what it means to be Pause. We challenge the status quo and we share stories that matter to us. I'm James Watson, and I'm HIV positive. If you're living with HIV, listen up. The HIV, the AIDS diagnosis actually shook me awake and my spirit. I was able to feel my spirit. I think storytelling is very key and healing for, for all of us. This is my guest today, Doris Pelche. We have a great show for you. This is Podcast. So in her 1969 autobiography, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, Maya Angelou wrote, There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. And this quote rings true, I think, for many people living with HIV. And on this episode, we are going to talk with Doris Pelche about storytelling and telling that untold story. As positive people, we are often asked to share our lived experiences with HIV to educate and inspire and advocate. Speaking our truth through story can certainly be an empowering release, but there are lessons to be learned and pitfalls to avoid. It's not a path for everyone. When I was thinking about this episode, I knew immediately that I wanted to speak to Doris, an Anishinaabe mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother, and a gifted storyteller. Doris was diagnosed with HIV in the year 2000 and works with the Canadian Aboriginal AIDS Network and with the Feast Centre for Indigenous STBBI Research at McMaster University. Doris, welcome to Podcast. Hello, James. I'm so honoured uh, that you invited me to be on your podcast. Uh, what a cool opportunity here to talk about story. Yeah, thank you. So, you know, storytelling is a term that everybody interprets in their own way. And I'm wondering, how do you interpret the term? Well, I am Indigenous. Uh, I'm uh, Indigenous uh, to Canada. And by that, I mean, uh, I'm Anishinaabe, which is one of the nations, uh, the Indigenous nations here in Canada. And so I actually come from an oral uh, culture. Much of our knowledge was uh, passed down through uh, story. And, you know, and it wasn't different stories. It was, they were more like teachings. So story was used to teach, to teach us about life and to teach us about, you know, best practices in life and all those really cool things. And uh, so I come from an oral tradition as well. And uh, oral is part of story as well in my experience. So that really enriched uh, my experience in terms of telling my story. I also have a background in uh, performing arts. So 25 years in performing arts as a uh, professional uh, actor and director and dramaturge, uh, that's how I um, made a living for all those years. And so a large part of the storytelling culture is, is within performing arts as well, because it's really about telling stories. So um, 
when I was diagnosed at the AIDS stage, um, that whole trajectory uh, shifted for me, but I was able to carry um, the, the storytelling skills from my culture and from my uh, profession as a as an actor of 25 years in Indigenous theatre. And um, so I was able to carry that storytelling aspect of who I am and, you know, to be able to use it uh, for this HIV journey as well, you know. So it right. was a tra- transferable skill for me. And yeah. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And because I was, you know, I'm a little starstruck, Doris, actually. I, I know that you've had so much experience as an actor and director and playwright. And uh, you've also received a Dora Mava Moore Award for your performance in Thompson Highway's iconic play, Dry Lips Auto Move to Kappa Skasing, which is fantastic. I had yes. no idea. I had no idea. That's, that's, and then you speak about how they're transferable skills. And I wonder how has this extensive artistic and performance background helped you in your work in the HIV? field? Well, um, maybe the, the immediate one would be um, knowing how to uh, use my voice and also just that oral tradition. I think it crosses over into our oral storytelling within our Indigenous kind of uh, community and, you know, pre-contact and that knowledge sharing. Um, so it, it was transferable skills, you know, like at the time that we were doing theater, when we started doing theater, um, I, I never really talk about this too much, but I was part of the trailblazers uh, within our community in terms of blazing the way forward for Indigenous storytelling in theaters, Mm-hmm. So that element of storytelling was already there. But I also have to tell you, pre-theater, pre-professional actor, from the time I was a little child, like that oral tradition, we lived it. You know, we were surrounded by storytellers. And I think that's why I got into the arts, because um, I was often around a lot of the elders and they were speaking in, in our language. Mm-hmm. And they were the best storytellers. Oh, my God. I learned so much just from listening to them and watching them as well, because they were very physical as well in the storytelling. They'd use gestures and demonstrate uh, what a character is doing using their body. So, you know, I kind of grew up surrounded by that tradition. Right. And it was a it was kind of an everyday thing. And yeah. And I remember uh some of the expressions and sometimes they'd act like uh, clowns as well. (laughs) And I remember when I was in theater and I I, I trained uh, in different types of training that would increase my, uh, my skills as a performer. And one of the trainings I took at one time was uh, I took an intensive uh, clown uh, course. Oh, wow. And uh, it was a six, six week intensive. So I went through that six weeks of very intense uh, clown training, a beautiful man that passed away. Uh, he died from um, AIDS-related complications about three years ago. And this was my pre-AIDS, pre-HIV days. I met this man who was my my teacher. Right. And we immediately connected. And uh, he, he did this training with us for clown. And it was six weeks. And so what we did was we um, did some exploratory kind of work to find our 
clowns from the four directions. Mm -hmm. Four directions, meaning? Like north, south, east, west. But he also included above, above, and that's the universe. Oh, okay. And then he we he also included below, below, that connection, that clown that's connected to the earth. That's an earth kind of based kind of clown. And then he had developed a, a training where there was a seventh clown, uh, and that was the trickster from indigenous oral storytelling legend culture. Right. And the seventh direction, uh, the seventh clown of all those directions was all of those directions. Oh, okay. All right. This is with the Native Earth Performing Arts. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So, so I took that intense clown training, and then I went home to visit uh, at my father's house. And, and my father was one of those storytellers I grew up around, very expressive face and gestures when they're telling stories and stuff. And I told him, Dad, I, I just finished a clown course. And he says, oh, show me what you learned. So I did these clown turns for him. And he was just amazed. And then I told him, you know where I get these expressions from? You and Auntie and all you elders listening to you and to doing your storytelling and all of that. So uh, you inspired me, I, I said. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Uh, he was so impressed. Every time a visitor would come into the house, he'd say, oh, daughter, uh, show them your clown, your clown turns. And he'd sit back and he'd watch me do a clown turn for visitors. And here I am, a grown ass woman, right, doing these clown turns. And But I really liked that he, he liked it. And I was actually inspired by them, you know, the oral culture that we come from. And all of that is transferable into uh, the importance of story for people living with HIV. I had a lot of transferable skills already because I, I was a trained actor as well. So storytelling was right down my alley. Yeah, no, for sure. That's that's amazing. Uh, one day you'll have to show me a clown turn, Doris. Oh, I will. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and my my clown uh, teacher, my 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 teacher, actually wanted me to become a teacher, and he would have trained me because he saw a natural clown in me, and uh, I had that natural ability. Same with the vocal teacher that came to teach us one time when we started performing on the main stage, like in three thousand seat theaters. They brought in a vocal coach to work with us to. Um, you know, do some vocal training with us and um, how to project your voice into a 3,000 seat theater. Right. And um, when I did it, he says, you don't need this training. You've got a natural voice. You can project it. Wow. So um, I'm very uh, thankful to creator that I have these uh, talents that I have been able to use in my life. And I continue to use as an HIV positive indigenous woman, you know, and I hope I, I'm able to inspire others too in the work that I do within the HIV movement. You know, doing my research, I was reading back in um, the Saskatchewan Sage, an old newspaper. Right. And, um, that I guess you did an interview for, and it says that uh, you were still waiting for that opportunity to play Lady Macbeth. And, uh, you know, I wonder, would you return to the stage? 
I, I I think about it because I remember when I made the decision to leave, well, uh, the aides actually made the decision for me. But there were a couple of times in, uh, you know, in that 25-year career when uh, I did leave one time because I, I had a son that I needed to raise. And, you know, the, the life of, the, of a thespian mm-hmm. is not very conducive to, you know, a family. It's very difficult raising a family when you're uh, working as an artist uh, and you're traveling because of that work. So um, I left one time and I remember telling Thompson Highway, he says, oh, don't leave. We're just writing this play, Res Sisters, and I want you to be in it. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to walk away for a while. I need to raise my son. And then Res Sisters took off. It ended up in at the Edinburgh Festival. And um, and I was, of course, I was very happy for them that just skyrocketed and, and launched Thompson Highway's career. And I remember I went and saw it in Winnipeg when they were, they were touring across Canada. And I went to the Manitoba Theatre Centre where it was playing. And I traveled there to go see Res Sisters uh, because I, was, I did the dramaturgy work for that to develop many of the characters that are in Res Sisters. Right. Uh, I developed a lot of the women that are in that play. So I went and saw them. And then uh, one of the women says oh, Doris, Thompson really wants you to come back and he's writing another play for you. Oh, wow. And I thought, well, I guess I'm going to have to come back if somebody's going to that effort to write a play for me. <laughs> right. So, And that was Dry Lips. Oh, dry okay. Lips, how to move to Capus Gasing. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's been – I, I don't really talk too much about – a lot of uh, my background, my professional background, I do have oratory skills, but I think all of those come from my own culture right. and the storytellers that I grew up around. Uh, and that's how knowledge was passed on, right? We, we are an oral culture as Indigenous people. So that's how knowledge was passed on. There's many cultures around the world that are like that, that uh, that are an oral culture. It's not written. And uh, so that's how our knowledge was passed on and through stories as well, through storytelling. And so a lot of those skills just kind of shifted like a uh, trickster that shapeshifts, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe in a way I feel like a shapeshifter. Uh, in terms of my own life journey as a storyteller, because that's part of my culture. That's very much part of uh, Indigenous culture. And in terms of living with HIV and the telling of that story, there was a lot of storytelling that wasn't told through, through our oral culture. And I realized that when I was diagnosed, that there was another story that we weren't telling. And that's the story about the historical trauma, those experiences with residential school and uh, the intergenerational impacts of residential school. And that, uh, and HIV is all part of that in the way we tell the story. I feel it's really important for people, Indigenous people that are diagnosed with HIV to learn that history and uh, to understand perhaps that trajectory that led to uh, 
being diagnosed with HIV, for an example. Right. You know, I, I could link I could link my story back to all of that, to the fact that there were things that I never talked about in my life, like sexual abuse, child sexual abuse, I never talked about in my life for most of my life. And I didn't talk about those things until I was diagnosed with HIV. Hmm. So I was able to tell that, finally tell that story and come to terms with it. And what gave you the confidence to tell that story? I think I wanted to tell it because I felt it needed to be told. And it was part of my own healing process because in terms of uh, storytelling and people telling their stories that are living with HIV, mm-hmm. there's a there's a journey in that storytelling from my perspective, you know, from my own experience, the telling of the story is a healing process. Right. The more you tell the story, the more it starts to change each year. So that story begins to adjust itself to your current uh, life experience and your life journey. So one day you just wake up, maybe you you were telling that story of the trauma and the sexual abuse uh, at the beginning of your HIV journey, but 10, 15 years down the road, you're not telling that story so much anymore because that story has been told and, and, um, and the telling of the story has um, introduced a healing process, right? And that's part of the healing is the re is the telling of that story and journeying through that story where it begins to change and become this strength space story. Right. Yeah. That's fascinating. Absolutely. And it's the same kind of story that needed to be told in terms of the residential school survivors. You know, when the residential school survivors first started to talk about the sexual abuse that happened in the residential schools, it took one leader to actually come out, and he was the national chief at the time here in Canada, to talk about his own experience of being sexually abused in a residential school. And it opened a floodgate, and people started telling their story. And that's that's when the healing process started to happen because when you're telling your story there's a form of validation Mm -hmm. uh, that happens by you telling your story the listeners are validating your experience and honoring that experience and that's kind of how we look at storytelling um, in through an indigenous lens but it's also uh, transferable in terms of living with HIV you know people don't just decide one day to, okay, I'm going to go out and have unprotected sex and hope I get HIV. Right. There's other contexts at play there, right? There's a whole trajectory. That's where the stories are important. And that's when, when people start connecting those dots, uh, then that powerful story uh, begins to emerge and their own healing happens. Do you remember the first time you shared your story of living with HIV? Yes, I, uh, I, I do. I, um, I shared it in a church, and um, to uh, uh, church people, huh. wouldn't you know that? They, eh? and um, they were not judging, because what I told them was part of my story uh, that I told 
when um, I got better from the AIDS relate AIDS related complications was that uh, AIDS jolted me, shook my spirit. It jolted me awake to to really take a look at my own life. And I think because of the sexual abuse experience and all of that kind of trauma that was kind of in my in my own history, mm-hmm. there were things that weren't talked about. And a lot of the people that went through residential school, I noticed this. They're shut down in some ways. They're not able to cry when somebody dies. They've shut down parts of themselves. And I shut down that spirit that I have as well. So the HIV, the AIDS diagnosis actually shook me awake. Right. And my spirit, I was able to feel my spirit. I think storytelling is very key and healing for for all of us. But for Indigenous people, um, because we come from an oral culture, uh, it's part of who we are. Right. And, and what should people consider before they start sharing their lived experience, do you think? Well, I think they need to consider disclosure. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an individual choice. I chose to disclose right off. Right. But I'm not, you know, I'm not pushing that. I'm not pushing people to disclose because that's an individual choice. They could still tell the story, I suppose, but disclosure is a is a, a big piece in there. And uh, so that's something that people would need to consider. But I do know there are safe places for you to tell your story as well. I work with a community. I won't say where. And it's one of the communities that uh, we've always tried to engage in the Indigenous response. So we did a project in this uh, one Canadian city, and we engaged these women and uh, that are living with HIV, but they're living in isolation. And they're living not disclosing uh, their HIV, fear of disclosure, fear of what their families might say to them and they weren't even disclosed to each other and they weren't even disclosed to their families, to their kids. And I, I, I thought, Oh my God. So I have a special place in my heart for these women because I'm still, I can still continue to work with them. You know, there's a, there's a bit of chaos and in, in their lives uh, and it's constant sometimes right. homelessness uh, revolving um, women's shelter door and you know in and out and uh, sporadic uh, access to treatment and it's really heartbreaking and uh, and then we went to uh, the international conference in uh, Washington DC and one of the women had come with us and she had never disclosed to her family so we traveled to Washington, D.C. We raised some money, and we took uh, about 15 women with us to Washington, D.C., to the international conference. And in the global village, this one woman from this community who had never disclosed got on the stage as a co-presenter, and for the first time, she disclosed her HIV status publicly. Wow. But, glo- 
but globally. Right. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing, isn't it? How did it? you feel and about that? I was proud of her, and yeah. she was proud. Of, uh, we were all proud of her. Like, wow, we said, you know, uh, you don't disclose at home, but you come over here on an international stage and you disclose to the world. <laughs> but, you know, those are insular spaces. So disclosure within those insular spaces, I th and they're safe, right? The safe spaces that we have within the movement where you can disclose because you're surrounded by like-minded people. You're surrounded by HIV positive activists and you're in a supportive environment. So it's easier to tell your story within these kind of safer communities. But it's a, it takes another decision, though, to, to go to a, a community outside of that, uh, the HIV uh, sector. Yes. So you talked about sort of the progression of sharing your story and how uh, you're not telling the same story now as you did, you know, years ago. So I'm wondering, where are you now in, in sharing your story? Well, where I am right now is, uh, and it's connected to my HIV journey. It's connected to research of all things. Hmm. So when I got diagnosed and I got into the movement almost right away, I found a niche with the Canadian Aboriginal AIDS Network. And um, I started going to these conferences and I, I'd go to a session about somebody doing a research project. So I went and listened and I started going to mainstream research conferences too, you know, because I'm trying to get as informed as I can. And also looking for, you know, what's out there for HIV positive Indigenous women and what kind of support is out there for us? So I'd go to all these sessions and take in the research. And a lot of the Indigenous research at the time was focused on our traumas. Right. And it was about the regurgitation of trauma. But that's the time period that we were living. So I'm not knocking it. And quite often it was researchers that were telling our stories. And uh, I thought, hmm, there's been a progression evolution in terms of how that story has also shifted and changed. And back in the, at that, th those early days when I was listening to research reports I was and reading research, a lot of those words jumped out at me, you know, like those uh, labels, uh, pathogenic words like uh, risk factor and uh, sex worker and druggie and, and the focus on that. And I thought, hey, that's not all we're about. We're not all about that. Where's the, the other stories? And so I began to push back on the research. I began to push back on the language that I was seeing on paper and that I was hearing uh, when people were presenting on their, on their research, I would challenge them and say, well, that's not, that's not what we're all about. That's not only that, that's only one piece that you're focusing on and nothing's being done. <laughs> right. A lot of talk. So, yeah. A lot of talk and no action. And so I, I, I did a cross country, uh, 
consultation with Indigenous women living with HIV and their communities and their supporters and the people who love them. And I did this cross-country consultation tour for 12 months talking to women. And what I came back with was we're tired of being talked about in that way. It's time to change that story. Where's the empowering stories about us? And so that's where Visioning Health came up. This whole idea of Visioning Health. I remember I was a board member at the Canadian Aboriginal AIDS Network when I did that cross-country consultation. And uh, I remember going to the ED afterwards and saying, this is what I'm hearing. This is what the women are saying. It was almost enough already about the trauma right. at that point in 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 the movement. Uh, so he connected me to uh, Tracy Prentice, and we conceptualized this uh, visioning health. And so that's kind of where I'm at now. Right. So just just briefly explain what visioning health is, just so the audience knows. Okay, visioning health is a um, a movement. Well, sometimes we say that because really it is. Visioning Health is a research project that started out uh, with a small little research project back in 2010. And we had a small group, three small groups of women that we did Visioning Health with. And it was an arts-based decolonizing participatory Indigenous methodologies research project. And what we wanted to do was... When we when that was designed, when we designed that uh, Visioning Health, that very first project was we didn't want to design it around, you know, hey, here's another helicopter research uh, project uh, where we're going to be extracting information from, you know, the people that participate in uh, this research. We're going to commit to spending an extended period of time with women right. in this process. And so that's what we did. When we did that, when we were committed to spending that extended period of time with women living with HIV, Indigenous women, they told us, hey, I really like this program. And say, hey, this is not a program. This is research. So that kind of informed us where to go next. Right. They saw it as a program in terms of how we did the research that was arts-based. And it asked questions that were strengths-based as well. What, uh, you know, what does health look like for you as an HIV-positive Indigenous woman? And how does your culture support that health? What about the gender piece? What does health look like through the fact that you're a woman as an HIV-positive Indigenous woman? So we looked at health, culture, and gender And these were questions, uh, you know, maybe women were never asked, what does health look like for you? Mm -hmm. Versus what was being asked, tell me about your trauma. Right. So so around that time that we designed this uh, project, the initial project, the Canadian Aboriginal AIDS Network had just done a study on the role of sexual violence in the lives of Aboriginal women living with HIV. And I helped uh, with the recruitment for that. And I always kind of, I almost regretted helping with the recruitment because when they did the interviews with the women at a wise practices conference, I convinced the women that this study was important and that we needed to speak to this issue. 
and talk about this issue and what role sexual violence had that led to HIV diagnoses and, you know, that whole trajectory. And um, I felt bad when I um, recruited the caucus. Can has a Aboriginal people living with HIV caucus that meets annually. So I recruited women from that caucus during the conference, during wise practices. And then they went for these interviews. Why do you feel bad? When they came out, they were so re-triggered mm. by the sexual violence trauma, the stories that they told. Right. And it was like putting out these little fires all over the conference. And I, I told mine too, but I was so busy taking care of the women, taking them to the elders for, for healing sessions. And uh, so I was busy taking care of the women because I, I felt like I had a responsibility. So the reason why I talk about that particular research project, I think that was probably the last kind of the last time that we ever did that kind of research. It was very uh, raw. It opened up wounds. And when the researchers presented the findings back to us, like two years after that time I was talking about, it was very hard to hear the findings, to hear all the stories that women shared. And it was around the same time that I was collecting this other information. And I, one of the comments I made to the researchers was, okay, how do we flip this around now? Right. So that was a real turning point then for yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. It was a turning point. And I believe there's an element of that when that turning point happens, when people are telling their story, right? Yes. There's, there's a process of healing that takes place. And then, uh, uh, like, I don't even really talk about my HIV anymore too much. I talk about the research and I talk about the importance of research. And now I'm working with the Feast Center for Indigenous STBBI Research uh, and um, working with McMaster. Yes, that's very exciting. Yeah. So... I think there's a, been a tremendous growth for me in terms of uh, my engagement with research, you know. And, of course, uh, it helps that I'm an avid reader. I love to read. You know, I became a reader as soon as I could read and, and when I learned English. So reading a research, uh, a research paper is no biggie for me. Right. To, to, to read. And even back then I was reading them and I was able to give critical feedback to the researchers. And I think there was a uh, paradigm shift in terms of the kind of research we were doing within the Indigenous community, where we began to uh, ground uh, our research in strengths-based uh, methodologies. So it's that telling of that story that's uh, kind of looking at uh, HIV through a strengths-based lens. And so I really believe I was part of that, uh, that shift. Well, that's, that's an incredible legacy. I mean, that's fantastic that that's starting to come to fruition. Oh, yeah. It's, I don't, I'm not a self-promoter. I, um, I really consider myself a, a helper in the community mm-hmm. from an Indigenous way. You know, I, I call myself a helper. I might have a title, but... That's what I do is that helper, and um, it's been quite the ride. (laughs) And I never thought I would be as excited about research because research is also about re 
search. And there's story in there. There's elements of story. But now we're going into, uh, like with Feast, uh, there's four pillars of science that Feast is uh, working with. And in each of those pillars, there's a story. So those four pillars are uh, basic science, clinical science, epidemiology, and social science. Right. And I think uh, within the indigenous community, our entry point in research was in social science, in the area of social science. And there's a there's an element of that storytelling in in that, and it's it's reflective of our oral traditions and our oral culture. It's a good fit, a eh? qualitative research and oral culture. Yes, uh, it's a good fit, and there's storytelling in there. It's very exciting work, and uh, I'm 63 now, and I'm wondering when I'm going to retire. <laughs> I'd still like to see that lady Macbeth, though, Doris. I have to say. Yeah, 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 I know. Yeah, I like Lady Macbeth. And uh, I also like, um, from the tale of two cities, uh, Madame Dufarge. Oh, yes. Uh, Yeah, she was the one that was constantly uh, knitting in the story and as people were getting beheaded and all that. (laughs) And, And I thought... That's a interesting juxtaposition. I, I when I went to high school and I read that book and it was part of our studies, and I thought oh, that's very interesting. <laughs> and I always remember that because I think about the weaving of stories, right? Right. And that's what she was doing. What a great role. Yeah. So I, I think I've led a very colorful life. I remember um, I was with this uh, researchers, and we were in. Uh, Edmonton and we were we had a research meeting with one of our sites and this researcher was a professor at the University of Ottawa at the time and uh, and of course Tracy got her PhD at the University of Ottawa and there was one other person uh, our um, helper um, for our knowledge keeper and we were traveling and then this professor says what are the three most outrageous occupations you've had in your life and I said well I'm I'm not sure you want to hear this but okay I'll tell you I've been a uh, I I was a table dancer I watched porn for the Ontario government oh my god (laughs) and what was the third one anyways they were just outrageous and she says are you serious and I said, yeah, and uh, explain to me what that was. Well, I did a table dance in the play, Dry Lips, How to Move to Capus Casing, and I had to do research. So I went to Fillmore's uh, strip club to do some research with some of the strippers there to learn the tricks of the trade. So I was able to uh, table dance and twirl my tassels. Oh, that was the third one. I can twirl my tassels. <laughs> and uh, anyways, uh she just cracked up, and then and then she, and then I said, "What about you?" All the other women were listening, and she says, "I forget what the the, the the one I just remember is when she said, I was a gynecological test person." Oh, and I said, "What do you mean by that test model?" She says, "Well, I was in university." And as a university student, you, you know, you take jobs here and there. And 
I signed up to be a gynecological uh, test model for the medical school uh, at the university uh, where doctors are learning about different things and and they have to learn how to do gynecological um, tests on women and they need to learn how to do it properly. <laughs> and a bunch of us feminists signed up for it so we could teach these doctors. <laughs> I mean, you, you win. <laughs> well, Doris, you are gifted with story, I have to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, my uh, God. Yeah. Oh, I hope she doesn't hear this podcast. Well, I'll, I'll give her a heads up. That's a good place to wrap up, I think. Uh, <laughs> but before I go, I have five lightning round questions for you. Okay. Yeah, you just have to choose one of the two options. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Lady Macbeth or Wonder Woman? Uh, Wonder Woman. Acting or directing? Directing. City or forest? Forest. Poetry or novels? Novels. Song or dance? Dance. There we go. There's a little bit about Doris Pelche. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Doris. I really appreciate you being on the show. It's been lovely. Thank you, James, for inviting me. That's it for us this month. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time on podcast. And if you have any comments or questions or ideas for new episodes, send me an email to james.podcast at gmail.com. Podcast is produced by the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions and PositiveEffect.org. The Positive Effect is a facts-based lived experience movement powered by people living with HIV. Technical production is provided by David Grine of the Acme Podcasting Company in Toronto.